Good morning, River Tree. How is everyone doing this morning? How's everyone's tum tums feeling today? You know, I'm curious. How how much candy did you all eat last night? I know for me, my blood right now might be more chocolate and nougat than actual blood, but that's okay. So we'll we'll see how hard the sugar crash is as the day goes on. I feel like we're in a weird season right now. And I feel like I, th this happens to me every year. Thanksgiving might be my single favorite holiday of the year. Like it might be my single absolute favorite day of the year. But I also really love the Christmas season and really, really love decorating for Christmas. So I feel like November is a constant battle for me between wanting to live in the moment and just love Thanksgiving but also wanting to turn my house into just a complete winter wonderland. So this is a battle that I normally lose. Why, hello, cat. Hi. That I normally lose every year around maybe the weekend before Thanksgiving is when I generally put up my Christmas stuff. So we'll, we'll see how this kind of rolls forward this year. Anyway, I'm, I'm curious. When do you normally put up your Christmas decorations? Are you a before Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve person? What, what do you generally do? Let me know in the comments below. All right, so this week we are kicking off our new series where we are answering your specific questions. You know, for the last couple of weeks, we've asked you all to send in some questions and you answered. You sent in some amazing questions and honestly, some really difficult questions. I've been a part of churches that have done this before where most of the questions have been along the lines of like Bible trivia kind of thing. So you can just kind of pump through a lot of them in a sermon and it's fun. The, most of your questions were not light, fun questions. I mean, they were fun, but but not light questions. So that's awesome. I'm, I'm excited to dive into some of these. And honestly, some of these questions that you asked are topics or areas that people could and honestly have spent entire academic careers trying to answer. So we're going to just try to tackle these in 20-minute sermon chunks. So what could go wrong with that, right? All right, so let's do it. Now, for our first topic, why don't we just dive right into a really heavy topic? You know, like me, I'm not the kind of person that when I go to a pool or go to a lake or a river or something that kind of wades in slowly. No, I'm just the dive cannonball right in, nosedive in person. So why don't we do that with this? We had some really good questions that people asked revolving around death. And so I wanted to spend some time addressing some of those. And today we're really just going to address this one main question. And that is, is my time on earth preset? Are my days already determined? And kind of a follow-up to that, is there anything I can do to lengthen or shorten this time? Now these questions hit at, I think, a pretty universal notion. And that is this mystery of death. Because death might be the biggest unknown in our universe, right? And I feel like a large reason for that, in the Christian world at least, is because the Bible's often frustratingly ambiguous nature in which it speaks of death. So because of that, there are a number of really compelling arguments about death. And most of them seemingly have some pretty good biblical backing. So I'm just going to start out by kind of taking the lamest way out of this question and saying, I don't know. I have what I think is a well-reasoned and rationed guess, 
And I think I have some good scripture that kind of supports it. But I fully acknowledge that it would be the supreme height of arrogance to say that I alone, I figured out the mysteries of death. I have it all figured out. You know, and I would honestly be strongly averse to listening to someone who says that they have everything figured out, that say they have the definitive answers on death and the unknown. You know, that, that sounds an awful lot like trying to elevate oneself to the level of God, and I, I think we all know how that has worked out in the past. Not, not too well. So, all of that to say, this is how I read and interpret the Bible as it relates to the lengths of our lives and how we can impact that. Now, I'm going to talk about a few passages this morning, but there are many, many other passages that we could and probably should look at that should be in this conversation, and we just don't have time to do that this morning. So honestly, if nothing else, I kind of hope that this talk maybe raises more questions for you, you know, and hope, hope that inspires you to maybe go out and read, read other theologians, dig into the biblical text and really develop this understanding of what death means for you. I know I wrote a paper a number of years ago on a theology of death, and there is so much out there, and it is really fascinating to read. But it's something we just can't do in this you know, short period. But I'm just going to give you some kind of brief thoughts on it, and I, but I want to leave it up to you. I want you to follow, follow these questions down to do more reading, do just dig deeper, because you, you could just dig as deep as you want, and you'll find some amazing stuff there. But for what it's worth, here is my answer to the question of, are the days of our lives numbered and known by God? And is there anything we can do to lengthen or shorten that time? Now, there are, like I said, a number of biblical passages that we could point to that seemingly get at the idea that God does know, in fact, how long each one of us will live. I think Psalm 139 is a great example of this. Um, this is actually a really cool psalm because it is basically an entire psalm that is marveling at how little we are, how little humanity is, when compared to the wonder and the splendor of God. In this psalm, in verse 5, the psalmist decrees that... Uh, there it is, okay. My frame was not hidden from you, but while I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes beheld my unforming substance. In your book was written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them had yet existed. Now, this seemingly really gets at that idea that God does know the entirety of our lives, even before we're born. That God sees the entire number of our days before those days even begin that God sees our lives from beginning to end. But this passage does have a little ambiguity. And the ambiguity comes in is whether God just knows the number of our days, or does God directly influence, directly create, or you know, input into that number? You know, is it the idea of, is it God who determines the number of our days? Or does God just know the number of our days because God's God and it's really us or some other outside factor that kind of determines that? And this is really an important distinction when talking about subjects like this, when talking about this. Well, there's another passage that I think gives some really, really good insight into this specific factor, into this specific iteration of this question. 
and that is Job 14. Now, Job is an interesting book, to say the least. It's a weird book in that it, it's a really big book. I want to say it's like 42, maybe 43 chapters. And only like two of them are plot. Yeah, everyone kind of know. most people know the story of Job. And that story that we all know is really contained in maybe two, two and a half chapters. The rest of Job is basically 40 chapters of varying peoples and God at some points giving long monologue speeches. And so this section here, Job 14, is Job giving one such long speech. So I'm going to start at the beginning in verse 1. A mortal, born of woman, few of days and full of trouble, comes up like a flower and withers, flees like a shadow and does not last. Do you ever fix your eyes on such, a, on such a one? Do you bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one can. Since the days of our lives are numbered, there are a num excuse me, since the since their days are numbered, and the number of their months is known to you, and you have appointed the bounds that they cannot pass, look away from them and desist. That they may enjoy like labors their days. Alright, so obviously Job is not in the best emotional space during this speech, right? There's there's a lot going on. There's a lot of self-pity, self-loathing wrapped up in this speech. And, I mean, that, that, that's understandable. You know, there's, Job is going through a lot right now. This is a supreme low point for Job. But he does hit at something really, really interesting in verse 5. I'll read it one more time. Since their days are determined, Job speaking about humanity, speaking about people, since their days are determined and the number of their months is known to you, the you being God, this is Job talking to God, and you, God, have appointed the bounds that they cannot pass. So here we get a really, I think, a clear picture and can really see that it is God that determines our days, that God appoints the bounds of our lives. And I think this is a really interesting way to think about our lives as bounds or as a bounded set, maybe. You know, there's a beginning when we're born, or, you know, how do you want to look at it? There's a beginning, which we can't obviously go past because we weren't born. That we, we, we weren't around, right? So we have a clear starting point, and we have a clear ending point where we can't pass. And our lives are fixed between this bounded set. I think it's a really cool way of looking at our lives. But what I think we can pull from this section is it, it is, in fact, God that sets those bounds that sets its beginning and this ending point. And now this brings us to the second part of our initial question. Can we change these limits? Can we alter these bounds of our lives? Or maybe another way of looking at it is if it is God, as we just kind of saw, who determines the bounds of our lives, can we get God to change those? Can we, through our actions, change God's mind about those bounds? As you can imagine, this is a massively huge and complex question. I mean, the question of can humanity affect or alter or change the mind of God is, is a big one. And there are a number of passages that 
you could look to that are seemingly examples where people have caused God to change thought or to have a change of heart. And Sodom and Gomorrah is one that a lot of people point to. You know, in, in this story, God comes to Abraham and says that Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be destroyed because they're just the worst. They're completely wicked. They have no redeeming factor, so they're going to be destroyed. Abraham, whose nephew Lot lives there, doesn't want those cities to be destroyed. So has this conversation with God where he pleads with God to save the city for the sake of the good people that are there. And through this back and forth, Abraham talks God down to being willing to spare the city if 10 good and righteous people are found there. God agrees to this. Now, in the moment, this seems like Abraham has changed God's mind. God was going to destroy the city, and now God might not. There's an out where God won't destroy the city. But if we keep reading, we see that those 10 and righteous people can't be found. They're not there. So the city gets destroyed. So really, Abraham didn't change anything. You might be able to argue that God, being God, always knew that those 10 good and righteous people weren't going to be found. So Abraham's protests were kind of useless from the start. So I personally don't see this as an example of someone changing God's mind. Because the, the, the outcome was exactly the same. Now there's a lot of other passages that potentially get this idea. One of them... I think thematically fits very, very well with what we're talking about, the idea of death. And that is Isaiah 38. In this passage, we read about King Hezekiah. Now, King Hezekiah is a king of the southern kingdom, and he has fallen desperately ill. The prophet Isaiah comes to the king and tells him, he, you're going to die. But the king doesn't obviously want to die, so begs God for healing, begs God to spare him. We're told that the king weeps bitterly, desperate to avoid this, his death. To which God responds in verse 5, so this is Isaiah 38 verse 5, Thus says the Lord, the God of your ancestors, David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, and I will add 15 years to your life. This seems like potentially someone changing God's mind, right? This seems to be someone causing God to have a change of heart. However, I, me personally, would say no, that that's not what's going on here. To me, this is reminiscent of a teaching or a leadership technique that you see used that I myself have used before. So think about this way. Uh, in teaching, what is more impactful? Just being told a fact? Just being told something? Or figuring it out for yourself? So here's an example. Most of us know that water and oil don't mix, right? That's something most people know. Now, do we know this or remember it because someone just told us it once and we just always remembered it going forward? Or do we remember it because we've seen this happen for ourselves? We've discovered that the two don't mix. We've done something, you know, we've been cooking or something or done a, a fun experiment with colored oils 
and seen that they don't mix. We've discovered it for ourselves. You know, I think there's a reason why we have science labs, why we do so many experiments with kids, why there's a real big difference between someone being quote unquote book smart, but not being able to apply what they've learned. I think we often learn and retain information the best when we come to the conclusion on our own, when we make this discovery on our own, when we have that aha moment. And I might argue that that's what's happening here in this Hezekiah story. I read what's happening here as Hezekiah being slow walked to the realization that every day is a gift from God. That everything Hezekiah has is only because of the goodness of God. So from this day forward, Hezekiah will think that every day is a gift and an unwarranted gift that he doesn't deserve. And in practicality, he's 100% right. But I don't think it's because Hezekiah managed to pull one over on God. That Hezekiah managed to craft such a great argument that God changed the bounds of his life. I think it's because everything in our lives is an amazing gift from God. And this was just the way God made that very and abundantly clear and real for Hezekiah. Now, you could very, very easily argue that I am making this story overly complex, that I'm reading too much in it and just kind of ignoring the surface telling the story. And you, you might be right. I would not argue with you there. Because like I said, this is a topic that is very frustrating because there's no... 100% clear verse that says, you know, this is how it works. So you do have to try to do some of this extrapolating. And for me, I am hesitant to say that we as humans can ultimately change the mind of God. Because that feels like a slippery slope that puts us far too close to being on even footing with God. And to me, that feels too much like reaching for and grabbing that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil trying to, thinking that we can in some way alter or change the mind of God to become more in line with our thoughts. But ultimately, like I said, I know that these are answers that we have no full way of grasping. I am fully aware of that. And I played a video game recently that I think illustrates this point amazingly. So in the game, you open on a pure white screen. Absolutely nothing there. Had I not been warned that this was coming ahead of time, I honestly probably would have thought something was wrong because just my TV was just pure white, nothing there. As you sit there waiting for the game, thinking for the game to load, nothing happens, nothing happens. You know, I get bored and just start twiddling with the joysticks, with the Joy-Cons. And as I'm doing it, a you know the screen doesn't really change. There's pure white, nothing changes. But off in the distance, I slowly see this golden crown come into frame. Okay, so I, I start, you know, as I'm playing with the joysticks, I kind of realize, like, all right, I'm moving. My character's looking around. I can't see the character. It's a first-person perspective view. So this, all right, so what's, what's going on? As you get frustrated and uh, play with more buttons, you eventually find you can throw ink balloons. And when these small ink balloons splat, they reveal something underneath. And then through doing this, you figure out, oh, I'm in a world. I'm first person perspective walking around this world 
it's just all invisible. It's just all pure white until I throw an ink blob at it and reveal a little bit of the detail underneath. So as you do this, through a lot of trial and error and making a ton of mistakes, having to circle back and, you know, you, and, you, and you don't, you can't ink blot everything because if you just go overly ink blot, everything turns pure black and then you're at the, at the beginning again, right? You, you can't see. But eventually, you, I make it through the courtyard. You find out, you, as you go, you see it's this complex courtyard. You go through a castle and such, and eventually you reach this crown. Now, once you do, the world gets a little bit filled in. You can turn around and see where you started from, and you realize it's pretty short and simple to get from where you started to where the crown is. But that's with the benefit of seeing the world laid out before you. You can see the path is super simple and quick that it's not that complex. But that's with the benefit of seeing it at the other end, with looking backwards at it. While you're in the world, you hardly have any information about the details of what's going on around you. You have your main goal. You know your goal is to push forward and reach that golden crown. But you're unsure of the terrain and of the exact details going on around you. Now, understanding some of these complex theological issues, I think is kind of a, in, in the same vein. You know, eventually, when we come into glory, we'll look back and see exactly how things are. And at that point, in my, I imagine, it'll be like, oh, that, I, I get it, that, that, that was pretty easy. But right now, we are in the oftentimes frustratingly blank room with just a few ink balloons to try to help guide us through and to try to figure out, fill in these details, details we just don't have right now. And we're not sure of these exact details, but all we know is that we need to keep moving forward toward that golden crown, toward the crown of Christ. Join me as we pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your amazingness. And we thank you and we embrace this idea of mystery. This notion that we don't know everything about you. This idea that there are going to be elements of our relationship with you that do require faith. And so Lord, we ask that as we move forward in this journey, that you would strengthen us and give us that faith that you would impart upon us just the overwhelming desire to continue moving forward to you and to continue to gather people around us to move forward with you. And so, Lord, we just ask that as we go throughout this week, Lord, that you would give us a peace and a calmness and that we could just remember that above all, no matter what's going on around us, you hold the future, that you hold us in the palm of your hand, and that you will ultimately protect us. You will protect our souls. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.